Hi, how's it going, everybody? And welcome to the Debutify podcast, the premier e-commerce podcast brought to you by Debutify. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and joining me today is Yash Chavin, the founder of Sorol, the simplest and fastest way for brands to get started with influencer marketing. On this episode, Yash and I discuss influencer marketing versus social media ads, what makes a bankable influencer, some of the obstacles to influencer marketing, and much more. Here's our interview now. Yash, welcome to the show. All right, Alex, I'm excited to to be here and be speaking with you. So let's do it. Let's drop some bombs. Absolutely, man. Very happy to have you. So first off, why don't we drop some bombs by just telling me a little bit about your company, Saral. Yeah, so Saral exists to make influencer marketing as simple as possible for e-commerce brands. I started because I was running an influencer agency and I looked into the market and pretty much all the tools in the market were clunky and expensive. We wanted to make something that's simple and affordable. So that's how Saral was born. So we basically, a DTC brand, they can come on, they can find influencers, reach out to them, track their commissions, spending, posts, things like that. So it's like an all-in-one platform for all things influencers. Yeah, And that all-in-one piece is the real selling point. I mean, obviously there are these smaller tools in terms of like emailing and sheets and 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 access to these influencers are all pieces of it but i feel like the real main selling point is that you don't have to go back and forth between all these other productivity tools is that accurate that is accurate yep that is one of our main selling points because the whole influencer process before saral was just distributed across like five different tools um now it is all consolidated in one place. Imagine you're recording a, a podcast and then the audio is being recorded on one device, the video is being recorded on another, just doing it on Zoom makes sense. So yeah. I think that's a good analogy. So I'm interested about influencer marketing as a whole. It's, it's something that we've talked in bits and pieces about on the show, but you seem like an expert in the field. I'm curious if influencer marketing really is more profitable than running social media ads, because that's something that you talked about before. Yeah. So I think I look at them as complementary more than competitive. So I won't even measure influencer marketing in terms of how much profit it gives me. I think influencer marketing is slightly reserved for brands that have at least one working channel, which is not influencer. Now, there's we've actually personally worked with brands that are just working with influencers and crushing it. But then usually brands, those are brands that are started by people who've worked in the influencer domain before. Most D2C founders have not worked in the influencer domain before. If you're going to do influencer marketing, either take it seriously, treat it like a discipline and just go after it. But I completely understand if a brand thinks that running a Facebook ad is definitely just much, much easier than speaking and negotiating with influencers and managing all of the process. And obviously tools like Saral make it easy, but then... Yeah, like running ads is completely different. But the good thing about influencers is once you start running it, once people are posting about you, you can take the content that they're making and run run it as a Facebook ad. And that kind of completes the cycle of that makes your so your Facebook ads more profitable because usually the more authentic kind of UGC content works much better than um, just like a static ad that you might make or a carousal that you might make, which is branded, right? It also acts as social proof. So you can maybe reuse it on, we have one of our brands who's reusing it as a retargeting vehicle for their um, abandoned cart campaigns. So it's like, okay, if you abandon a cart, they'll send you a video saying, looking at like all these five influencers, what, what do they have to say about the product that is just left in your cart? And by the way, here's a 10% off. It's acting as a social proof um, engine. So I see it more holistically, and it's obviously going to increase your profit in different ways. But I see it more of like a 
doing it just makes life much easier across all the other things that you're doing. No, I think that's really smart to run the influencer content as an ad. And so that way you're kind of getting as much bang for your buck as possible. That's smart. I'm interested in, I feel like it's not something that people talk about often. And that's why does influencer marketing work full stop? I mean, why does that work better than maybe just user-generated content or you know, an, an ad that a brand may have made like a commercial for the, for the product that they just run as content. Why is influencer marketing kind of at the, at the top of the key there? All right. I love the question. So let's just do away with influencers and Facebook ads and everything else for a moment. Think about marketing and sales in general. It's like people talking to other people, telling them about some awesome thing that they heard, right? So before the world of social media or technology, let's, if we rewind back 500 years, Pretty much the only way you could sell anything was if one person told another person about your thing existing and how it helped them. As the only way where you could communicate and like get the word out there with influencers or with with like with people and, and create a name in the market. So now I think I look at influencers as just that kind of kernel on steroids, where instead of one person talking to five of their friends, it is one person talking to fifty thousand of their friends on social media. I mean, increasingly people are living, I mean, you, me, everyone else, we are spending more time than we'd like on TikTok, on Instagram, scrolling, looking at creators. And these are the creators that we trust and we follow. So it just makes sense that we have a certain sort of relationship with them, even though we've maybe never even met in person. I mean, a recommendation from them comes across as something that is comes with trust. So that's why I think influencer marketing works because it's taking something very fundamental to human nature, which is, you can call it word of mouth and putting it on steroids and adding just scale to it by the, because of by the nature of the audience. No, that's great. And I think that the relationship that customers have to an influencer is, is very interesting. Like I think terminology nowadays is, is, is like parasocial where they have a trusted brand that is curated so that brands that they support are already trusted because they're in coordination with someone who has garnered trust from a larger audience. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And that leads into my next question. What are some of the most bankable traits that influencers or a good influencer should have right now? So when you or a brand are looking for a good influencer to promote a product, what are some of those character traits that you're looking for? Amazing. I love that you call it character traits and not necessarily asking me Should you focus on nano influencers or big or small influencers and who should you target? I think because most brands get stuck up in like the nitty gritty of the metrics, like should we go with the celebrity or should we work with nano influencers? Because I read a blog on on LinkedIn or something like that. Um, But that's a very good question. So what we see, obviously beyond all the metrics, right? If their engagement rate is zero or like no one's liking their posts or if they have too many bot followers or if they're just like not creating good content. All the once the basics are there, I think there are many good creators, but brands need to find who is the creator that'll authentically vouch for just their brand. And this is a obviously this is a hypothetical ideal of a creator, but that's the point. Just like in marketing, you would create an ideal customer persona. Uh, I like to call it you create your ideal creator persona. Who is your creator that is only only going to promote your brand and nobody else, at least in your kind of industry. So you create that. And the way we usually go about it is, is first we get down to the metrics. So like, yeah, okay, like we should probably target this follower range and this much engagement rate and so on. But once that is set aside, those are the basics. What we really look at is philosophical alignment over anything else, because I illustrate this with an example. We were work- once working with a skincare brand and they were using some, this is 
slightly before Saral existed. So they were using another tool, like a marketplace to hire influencers. And then what happened was they worked with an influencer. This is for context. This is an organic skincare brand um, that is cruelty free and so on. And they are very conscious about the kind of products that they make. So they worked with this creator. They post the creator posted about them. That was all good. And then one week later, the creator posted again about like a makeup company. Now, is it bad to promote makeup? Nope. Is it bad to promote an organic skincare company? No. But when it's the same person promoting two kind of anti-theoretically polar opposite things, like one is organic and natural, one is like makeup, which obviously has chemicals in it and so on. That did not feel well with the brand. And that's when we learned this lesson of, okay, there has to be some sort of philosophical alignment. And since then, we've been targeting creators who are very much uh, like fit that ideal creator persona so the main thing that we look is just alignment when it comes to your your mission your vision your values so if you're let's say you're a let's say you're a vegan protein brand don't work with an influencer who's promoting meat in their diet plans for example there's plenty of fitness creators that are also promoting vegan stuff that you can work with so just don't work with because oh that guy or that gal she has a million followers, so I need her to promote me and then uh, my brand's going to be successful. But I think having that philosophical alignment takes care of most of the other things and the specific in terms of like what type of deal you offer them or what type of a, like do you do a gift to them or what their follower count is. All that is secondary. I think the primary thing brands should focus on is are they aligned with our core values? Because then once you have that taken care of, what I'm hearing you say a little bit, Yash, is once that brand philosophy is aligned, then you can kind of sort by budget. You know, I mean, that everyone wants uh, an influencer with 10 million followers. Most brands can't afford that for, you know, 20, 30 days or something like that. So you're better off hedging your bets and getting someone who you know is going to be able to sell the product efficiently or promote the product efficiently while also being able to afford that. Is that accurate? Yeah. And to add to that point, I think you might actually be at more, you might actually have more downside if you work with someone with 10 million followers than if you work with someone with, say, 50,000 followers. I'll give you an example. So I think Kim Kardashian, just the most extreme example, right? Let's take the most popular person. Kim Kardashian, I think she promoted Beyond Meat, which is a vegan meat company, I, think, I guess. And she got a, she was in an ad and she was like their official ambassador or something like that which is a version of influencer marketing that they're doing. And she was in the ad, she was shown taking a bite of a burger. Now, the problem is she didn't actually take a bite of the burger. It was very clear that she does not, probably has not ever tried their product. And they posted a YouTube video and the comments were all roasting the brand. Now, yes, you worked with a creator. You probably got a lot of people to watch the video than were going to watch if you did not have her in the video. But then did anyone buy because of that? Very likely not. Plus, you got roasted for it. On the contrary, if they had worked with scientists or just vegan influencers in general who had maybe 100,000 followers instead of 10 million followers, they might have gotten less people to watch. But then pretty much most of the people who would have watched it at least would have resonated with the type of um, promotion that was being done. And again, a large percentage of them might have bought, if not immediately, then sometime in the future from the brand. So it just makes sense to work with, again, so that's, again, the philosophical alignment. Maybe Kim Kardashian is not vegan. So why do you want to work with her as a vegan brand, right? Work with like a, maybe your doctor who's who's also a vegan and who promotes that kind of a lifestyle. I think that's a great observation because there is a certain human element 
to influencer marketing versus ads or email or SMS. It feels so content or subject, the text, you know what I'm saying? And so when you have an influencer, there's already a bit of maybe like a stigma attached to them. There are just as many people who don't like this influencer than there are people who do or people who've never heard of them. And so I think that's kind of a large factor there is what's attached to that person. Yeah, I think that's that's very interesting. So do you think that there is such thing as bad press when it comes to, I know that's kind of an old adage and that might be old hat in digital marketing is there's no such thing as bad press. But if the goal is to create a profit and our brand is just getting a bunch of eyeballs without actually converting anything, did it work? I guess is my question. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why do you want to get all the wrong eyeballs? It does not make sense. I guess back in the olden days when getting press was so difficult, like you probably had to jump through a lot of barriers to get some press or get on the radio or get in the newspaper. Right now, everybody has, everyone's a reporter basically of news, right? So if you, are seen doing something or if your brand is represented in the wrong way, I don't think all press is good press at all. So I think there is such a thing as bad press. And then especially not even from a brand perspective, but even from a customer perspective, you yourself wouldn't want to buy from a brand that you're not aligned with. And that's fine. That is human nature. So if they're like brands have to be conscious of that and who they work with. Right. And so I'm curious, what are some of the other obstacles to using influencer marketing. We've talked about a few of them right now, but stigma, not converting. What are some of the other ones, especially ones that uh, Saral has been able to navigate a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So I think one of the things that I would also share is just in general, I think a lot of new brands who don't, who haven't done this before tend to bias for the word influencer. And they think that they have to work with someone with even let's say 500K followers or even 100K followers. Um, but we've actually seen instances where a person with 10K followers has driven more sales than someone with 90K followers, for instance. So there's always that. And with that anecdote, I would like to say that you need to focus on influence, not on influencers. So you need to align yourself with who has the most influence in my market. Is it the person with 20, like, is it the person with 20,000 followers who always talks about how a particular type of workout is better than the other? Or is it that yeah, good looking um, girl with 5 million followers who doesn't really know much about what we are doing, but it's high reach. So which one is it? And then you can find a lot of people who are smaller and get the same reach but increase the level of influence. So give you an example again, given an option between working with one person at 100K or working with 10 people at 10K each, I would go with the latter because working with 10 people at 10K, first of all, I'm diversifying. So my downside is limited. If the 100K person does not work out, I lose all my money. If two of the 10 influencers don't work out, I'm still likely to make profit. So that's that just from a mathematical perspective. But even from a philosophical higher level perspective, it's just that, you would get by definition by, if you remember, if there's any marketers and founders in the audience, they know the adoption curve. It's always like the early stage. They're all the early adopters. They're all the people trying the new things, like all the, let's say like the AI people from five years ago. Now, maybe like marketers didn't care as much about AI five years ago, but then a lot of the AI people did. They were all the early adopters, right? So usually at the stages of an influencer where they're like quote unquote nano influencers, they have all the early adopters of their audience, which are, uh, which who believe in them, who trust them the most. 100K, the early adopters are lesser. At that point, they have reached a certain scale where they have just casual followers. 
So working with smaller people um, just makes more sense. And that is some, something that we've also done at Saral is that our search engine. So we built a search engine and not a database. So pretty much all the platforms right now are databases, which means they have a set of data that is plugged into the platform. And that's it. And they probably also update it sometimes. But then what we built is a search engine. So you're able to search across social media on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube for whatever you want. And for example, you're able to combine keywords such as skincare and vegan, for example. And then it will show you influencers who speak about both those things. And it will show you an intersection. So stuff like that we're able to do to facilitate this influence, not influencer thing for our brand. That's something that I would mention. No, that's that's extremely valuable. And so... Are these influencers already vetted or when I find a coalition of, we'll say, 30 different people who hit that Venn diagram of skincare and and vegan and they're at the numbers that I want, they look and act the way I want, how do I know that they're vetted properly? And and is there like a price range that's in Sorol so I know that no one's wasting their time when I email them and say, hey, I'd like to work with you. And they give me a number that's so beyond even even a willingness to negotiate, you know? So I'm curious if if they're vetted by you guys or, or your system, or if that's something that the user has to do. Yep. So it is a search engine that has pretty much all the creators on social media, but we do not. So we just remove everyone with a very high number of bot followers. Gotcha. So anyone with more than... So like we do all those basic checks. Although apart from that, um, it's lit- quite literally every nice person on social media whom you would want to work with, with a public account. So all the public info is there. And then the way we, that's actually a very good question, the pricing one. We actually came up with a metric called fair price. Um, and we analyze all their metrics, such as their follower count, their growth rate, their engagement rate, their even the quality of their audience in terms of how authentic it is. We also look at how many influencers are following that influencer. So a bunch of like other factors like this. And we have an algorithm that comes up with a fair price for that creator. And then it'll show you, hey, if you want to work with this person, this is a fair price. And if they, you can, you can send them an email through the platform. And if they come back with something that's more than way more than that, then you can get back to them and you have, you can confidently know that you have room for negotiations. But if they maybe come back with something around that, or maybe even lesser than that, then you know that you're getting a fair deal. No, that's great. I really appreciate that answer. And I think what what y'all do at Sorol in the app is very interesting in terms of explaining or attaining influencers via these like credits. Can you can you explain that to me and our audience a little bit? Is is how these credits work? I'll explain the feature. And, but first, I will, I'm going to go a little bit higher level and explain why we built it. One of the mistakes that I see brands make is they underestimate the volume that is needed to succeed. So, for example, you cannot expect to go to the gym one day in a week and build a great body. Right? You cannot look like an athlete by going to the gym one day a week, for example. Right? In a similar hand, brands would like reach out to 10 influencers a week and they would expect their program to work. And that is like one of the main roadblocks, like usually with smaller brands that I need to clear, like, hey, you need to be reaching out to at least 30 to 50 influencers on a weekly basis, at least for your first month, for you to build a community that is big enough to get you the sales volume that will be meaningful. So we used to explain this. And then again, humans are humans. They stick to their previous habits. So what we did was we gamified this with in-app credits. So that's why that credit feature is when you get on the platform, you can search, the search is unlimited, but you can save only 50 people 
in your first go. So once you say your first 50, you've got to send them outreach through the platform. And once you do that, they keep adding bonuses so that you never pretty much never run out of um, the credits to reach out to. But it's like a gamified thing where it's a system of predictably building your influencer program. And so it's built so that to ensure brands are taking all the necessary actions to succeed. And then there are some brands that are already doing things and for whom we disable that feature, but then, yeah. So do most people not have to buy more credits? It's kind of designed to push people in the direction of using these credits and then getting bonus credits. So you're kind of pushing them in the right direction of this is how often you should be contacting influencers. Correct. Yes. And just to be maybe a little bit more, add a little bit more nuance to that. There are brands that want to reach out to 5,000 influencers a month. In that case, they want to pay and they're bigger brands like nine-figure companies and so on, and they're working at that volume. Um, in that case, they have custom plans where they get more credits, but then for most purposes, um, they don't pretty much never run out of credits. But if you do, there's an option to buy more. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate the way that you explained it. Another reason why we made that is because influencers by their very nature is a flexible channel. So usually, like, for example, coming from Facebook ads, very likely you're going to increase spend if it keeps working. So maybe you have a budget of 10K for the next this quarter. The next quarter, it's going to be maybe 25K if it's working. And then you're going to keep increasing or at least you're going to make it stable. Influencers, by their nature, are very, it's almost like a cyclical channel or it, it ebbs and flows because you're starting off, go all in with your outreach. And once you have a certain level of community, you got to stabilize a little bit. You got to keep doing more posts with the same creators. So brands don't necessarily need the same amount of credits to save and reach out to influencers every single month, which is why we made that flexible. What our competitors do is they charge brands for the influencers that are in their program, which doesn't make sense because it's penalizing the brand for their growth. So what we do is we don't charge anything extra unless you want to save a large number of creators, like I mentioned, and then you can buy more if your needs suddenly increase. So like, for example, BFCMs coming up and you want to reach out to a thousand influencers this month instead of a hundred. In that case, you have the option to buy more. So it's just flexible. So it makes sense for the pricing to be flexible in that regard. No, I appreciate you explaining that. I'm curious about the proliferation of influencers. I mean, even during your explanation, I'm, I'm thinking what, what's the difference between a creator and an influencer? Essentially, a creator, an influencer is just a creator who gets paid. You know, a creator is more of like a, a, a hobby than an influencer can be a job. And, you know, just talking to my nephews or my little cousins or something like that and, and saying, what do you want to be when you grow up? They say, some of them will say an influencer, you know, I want to be a YouTuber because that is a job now. It's not just like a hobby that people like myself had when it came out. My question to you, Yash, is that with the proliferation of influencers, do you actually see that diminishing other advertising opportunities or jobs in the space that that has kind of taken the place of other things? I mean, for every kid out there who's saying, I want to be an influencer is one less astronaut is kind of the way my brain works. So I'm curious if there is kind of like a, a bit of a one for one in, in your experience where you've seen less email strategists or less Facebook advertisers or, or what have you. I think, no, I think I've, I've heard that before and i think we're just exaggerating what kids want to do because as kids maybe you and i wanted to be so many different things and it's just like influencers are the hot new trend right now so everyone wants to be influencer and who doesn't at a certain degree everybody likes fame 
So it's that element also that's attractive. Obviously, everybody likes money. There's money if you're a popular creator. So yeah, I mostly use those words interchangeably, um, mostly because I've I've been doing influencer marketing since it was mostly called influencers. Um, and now I, I actually prefer the word creator over influencer because that, again, that takes, that distinguishes work with people who are true to their craft, work with people who know why they're doing what they're doing and they have a passion for the co- type of content that they're producing. So um, Alex, your questions would be way different if you were not passionate about the e-commerce space in general. You would maybe ask me some cookie cutter questions that you Googled up or that you chat GPT, but your questions come from a pace of genuine knowing, which means you are a creator, right? Versus if you were just another, like another podcaster, for example, which is the influencer congruent of the audio world you would just ask me some templated questions i would have rehearsed answers and then we would end the show right so i think that's a distinction that i make is that creators tend to just create things because or create content in this instance because they want to create content um it's not necessarily always been driven by a place of oh i want to make that a career and pretty much all the best creators tend to be people who do things out of out of passion for the doing of the thing. So like, for example, I pretty much, if I want to buy a car, I'm going to watch a car review by a car guy, like who like just likes car and and he's been playing with cars since he was six years old. And now he like reviews cars for a living versus looking at some magazine top gear type of a review, for example. So that is where I draw the distinction that the creator is more from the heart and creator is more all encompassing, I guess, a painter is a creator, right? Or uh, podcasters are creators versus influencers tend to be more siloed into like the social media, Instagram, TikTok kind of a world. Yeah. And, and and I think you're really touching on something valuable there, Yash. And that's like creator, influencer. They're both under the ambassador. They're just types of ambassadors, you know? And, and I think that kind of is the terminology that came before influencer or, or, or maybe even creator, at least content creators, is people are always ambassadors, you know, a representative of a brand. They're just representing a brand in a digital way via creating. So I think you're really touching on something extremely valuable there. And I think the best trait from my perspective that a creator can have is, is like a point of view. You call it passion. I think they're kind of the same thing, but an original perspective or point of view that feels unique to that person. Those are the people that I gravitate toward when it comes to um, creators. Are there certain ones that that you have a certain affinity for? Uh, before we wrap up, I'm curious if you, Yash, have any any creators that I don't know certain brands should look out for that I don't want to play like favorites or anything like that but I I know with your history and background that you probably have some people that you've loved working with and would recommend to other brands I'm not going to name drop recommendations because again it's going to be like everyone's going to reach out to that person even if it's not a fit but then all the creators I'll give you a theme so all the creators that I've loved working with over time first have the philosophical alignment with the brand that that we're representing so my recommendation for a creator to a skincare brand would be different to let's say a fitness brand for example and then i all the creators that did really good for us in terms of performance or in terms of profit were everyone whom we had good relationships with so there were creators who did well we had like email conversations back and forth we paid them on time they made the video they loved the product but then we didn't necessarily have like a like a true relationship with them is more transactional, which is fine. And that's what 80% of your ambassador base is going to be like that. But then the best performing creators, pretty much always we had good relationships with. We were on a texting basis with them. We were one text away. 
we had potentially done a Zoom call or a, like a WhatsApp call before. So those are the creators that really end up performing well because they know you, they feel like they're part of your brand. So especially if you're a newer, early stage or even like beginning to grow stage brand that are against like a big competitor or some sort of a archaic way of doing things in your industry, people tend to gravitate towards that naturally. And if that person tends to, happens to be an influencer, they're going to authentically promote you. And we've gotten free shout outs. We've gotten we've like we've gotten good favors from people who we've built good relationships with. So I think I would leave with like prioritize relationships over transactions as much as possible um, in the influencer world. Which is why if you've seen Saral, we've also built like this CRM board where you see all your conversation history with the person every time they've posted. You can track it and so on. So it's like a it gives you that again. It's built in a way to that biases you for success. Um, which is why we have that kind of uh, relationship management component to it. So yeah, no, that's great. I think building relationships is extremely important in this industry, and I think some people take that for granted in terms of I pay you to do a job, you do it for me, and then we move on. You know, and then we can all if if we do a good job, we will work together again in the future. And I don't think it's that that simple or black and white always. I think sometimes it's a lot more beneficial to create a relationship than you pay them to do the job, not the other way around. That's why the the whole seeding strategy with influencers has become so popular because in that case, you're biasing for the relationship first. So you would ideally send them a free product. If they like it, then you can decide to do a collab with them, which also tends to work fine if you have a product with low cost. But yeah. And when you do that, do influencers only promote a product if they like it or just they think, oh, this is a decent idea. I don't even know if I love this product, but I could definitely sell it. Or do they usually have to have some sort of actual relationship with the product? Yeah, I think depends on the influencer. There's definitely influencers who would promote things because they think it's kind of cool. I I mean, the opposite is also true. Like if you go to I like to think in extremes because extremes have more clarity. If influencers dislike a product, they're more likely to promote it than if they like a product. And by promote, I mean bad press. Because if it's like if it's bad depackaged or if it's if the brand made a huge mistake that they, that they think that is worth um, sharing on socials, they might do it. And we and I think it's called de-influencing. It's this trend of influencers saying don't buy this so that's something that to be wary of so that happens and then definitely there's the middle where influencers think yeah this is nice this is sweet some people in my audience might like it and even though i don't personally like it in which case it's also fair to promote because they're all they all also like maybe also doing it as a, as a side hustle or it's their full-time thing and it, like it's good if they get paid um, but then the best creators that you will work with, like I said, are always going to be the ones who are fully philosophically aligned, bought into the why your product exists, and then they just keep promoting you. Doing those repeat promotions with as many of those ideal creators as possible is what will uh, make your influencer program print. Wonderful. Before we wrap up, Yash, I always ask my guests the exact same last question about e-commerce industry and entrepreneurship is very go, go, go 24-7. And I think it requires a lot of work-life harmony and mental health hygiene to be successful. I'm curious, Yash, what you do in your free time in terms of hobbies and interests to ensure a good mental health and a less stressful life. I like that you call it work-life harmony and not balance. I like that word. I've also heard. I stole that from someone. I got to tell you, I can't remember who it is, but I kept calling it work-life balance until I did one of these interviews and someone said, I prefer work-life harmony. And I said, I'm taking that from you running forward. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I prefer, I've heard work-life integration before as well, which is kind of like a similar concept. But then, yeah, I think right now, if I were being honest with you, I have a, 
imbalanced life where most of my life is balanced towards doing work and i do it because i don't feel like it is it's work is a burden although i completely get uh pe- why people would want balance and i've wanted balance before in my life but then right now i feel like i'm on a mission to simplify influencer marketing so i wake up every day i work and then speaking on the integration part so i th- i definitely think on the word balance i am very imbalanced heavily towards work but then speaking of integration um i do take good care of my health um i go to the gym pretty much every day so that is kind of like my also a reflective period um for me cuz most of the time in the gym you're resting so you can sit there and think about certain things and reflect on your uh, on your work your life and so on so i think um i it's more it's more on the integration or the harmony side right now than the balance side but that's 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 my choice so yeah no absolutely and i think that's the point of of work life harmony instead of balance is things can be unbalanced while still being harmonious you know harmonious. if you want to put yes. a lot into like you know work right now but you feel good about it and there isn't that that monkey on your back or or that impending anxiety or stress then that's what's important you know that's what's harmonious even though it, it might not be imbalanced uh, that's that's why that's kind of old hat terminology yeah and then i know some people who have the opposite uh, where they're like maybe they've they're established entrepreneurs because uh, you mentioned entrepreneurship and e-commerce there's a little bit more stressive made decent money um and then now they're biasing towards life more than biasing towards work which makes sense because there's different i think i like to think of life in seasons and i like i train mma as well sometimes although now lesser because of the because of sarah but if you look at mma athletes or any athletes in general they need to train for a season and then there's a resting phase and then once the new like the the league is up or the championship is up and they again train in, intensely so i like to think of entrepreneurship also in seasons where maybe you're going all in especially if it's like the first 2 to 3 years of your business and then maybe you can be a little bit more balanced after that and there may be phases where it's just extra hyper growth and you go all in so i like to think of it as it in seasons no that's great i like that analogy and thinking of it as seasons well yash thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure talking with you and good luck with sarah thank you alex i appreciate the conversation i really loved your questions so yeah uh, i'm looking forward to it Absolutely. Absolutely. Have a good one, man. I'd like to thank my guest, Yash Chavin, for joining me on the show and come back on Tuesday when I talk with Ayo Disu, the co-founder of Octillion Capital Partners, a value-driven digital native consumer brand platform acquiring, operating, and growing an ecosystem of inclusive and sustainable brands in the health, beauty, and food and beverage industries. For more information about Yash, you can connect with him on LinkedIn or follow him on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at YCTheMan. To learn more about Sorol, you can visit their website, getsorol.com, spelled G-E-T-S-A-R-A-L.com. That's our show. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you come back to find new episodes being published every Tuesday and Thursday. Until next time.